Hey everyone, uh, welcome to Index Podcast, where the three of us come, to come together every couple of weeks to discuss on-chain data, chart crimes, and metrics that move the crypto industry. Um, the three of us, that is uh, Denning, the on-chain corgi at Flashbots. Yes. Um, Hill Dobby, resident data house elf at Dragonfly. Hello. And uh, me, uh, community power horse uh, at Dune Boxer. Um, Before we start, um, nothing we say, we say here should be relied upon as legal, financial, investment, tax, or even life advice. Um, we are acting independently of our respective employers, and uh, none of the views here uh, are uh, the views of our employers. Um, and yeah, uh, with that, let's get started. Um, our first... Uh, kind of section of this podcast will always be the chart of the week. And uh, this week, Denning has uh, brought us a great chart um, from the research that Flashbots is conducting on MEV. Denning, go ahead, explain it. <laughs> yeah, pretty excited to you know bring this work of me and uh, Angela and a few others from Flashbots that is you know trying to index the DEX trading, how to say, landscape and how they are tied to each other in the MEV supply chain. So um, two weeks ago, my teammate Angela, she shared the links for this website that we put up finally um, after six months of work in data and also her blog post on her opinions, you know, summarizing the whole thing. So um, what is orderflow.art? So what we did was really trying to, trying to, how to say, connect the dots between all these players or, you know, entities that is um, connecting this whole tra DEX trading experience today, whoever is interacting with Ethereum, trying to make a trade on. So there, this, how to say, this word has been, how to say, evolving and sophisticating into so many layers. And like, rarely, I would say, like, if you go to Uniswap today, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ima imagine there's so many pieces behind. So we developed two pieces here. So like one view or one version is like how to measure the retail demand or traffic from the front-end side. So with this uh, version, we have a few components like front-end, meta aggregators, solver, and how did it go to the public mempool, private mempool, and if the user's order got into an order flow auction or not, and to which builder it landed on chain. Um, I know there's so many jargon, so feel free to stop me anytime. And uh, with this picture in mind, we're trying to quantify like who in the DEX space has the most, for example, retail um, distribution power, meaning like how, who has the most volume coming from user end, like in the front end, and like how potentially all those flow are uh, going into like a private mempool, meaning all those order flow become, you know, some builders potential uh, power. And another view is more like focusing on the liquidity side, because like, okay, this is a very, you know, complicated and so many details here. Um, Is it, this DEX trading, how to say, space started with order, how to say, uh, OTC order or like order book model. And then we had AMM order, uh, AMM model come up. And now we have aggregators who is aggregating AMM and uh, RFQ orders. And so the liquidity side also has become like so complicated with different structures. And the goal here is really trying to, you know, showcase Uh, which liquidity pool is the do most dominant today and how all those RFQ system has been tangling it into each other. So yeah, um, I have a few, how to say, view preloaded. Like for example, 
if you uh, felt can, can you read a quick take a yeah. take a step back and kind of we're looking at this Sankey diagram and from left to right uh, we're looking at mm -hmm. front end to finally kind of like whoever matches the order if you go back to retail trade volume um, mm -hmm. so maybe can you quickly walk us through what all of those like individual steps are and then maybe what the players in those individual categories are just so we have yep. like a common frame of understanding here before diving deeper yeah, so um, if we go from the left and you see all these like major front end that we indexed, um, you see CowSwap, you see Uniswap and one inch. Uh, there are some small, how to say, segments here where we, for example, segmented at one inch website default and one inch integrators. Because right now, there a lot of these uh, platform, they also develop, develop something more sophisticated called a solver model. So like one inch fusion, CowSwap and Uniswap X would be the three uh, represents of a uh, solver model. And so, um, actually, let me go by how to say uh, from the simple simplest to the most complicated, right? So today, if you are trading on Dex, um, the e the simplest model would be like you go to a Dex front end, and they just check all the AMM liquidity pool they have, and they find the best uh, price for the user uh, that's routing across their liquidity pool. Okay, so that's more like just like a AMM router. And so the next would be there are Dex aggregators where they are checking across all the DEX AMM and they're checking across those pool. And then they're also checking RFQ, so request for quote. It's a system where behind there are professional market makers waiting for the ping from the user and basically going to give you a price that they can offer. And a lot of time, they can have a better price than the AMM uh, prices because they're also moving liquidity, making you know trades, arbitraging trades on the centralized exchange uh, with the profits. Um, so that will be that's the aggregator uh, who is checking both AMM and RFQ. And now we have an even more sophisticated model where it started with CowSwap. They were saying, okay, I'm not going to be even the person doing the centralizing uh, routing decision. I'm going to just outsourcing my routing to a bunch of people. I call them solvers. And so I'm going to just say there is this user coming in with this intent of trading this pair of this side who are going to give me the best prices. And these set of solvers, they're going to basically figure out what's their routing algorithm and what's their best price they can offer. Um, some may have some integration with RFQ or market makers behind. Some are directly just market maker. And some could be just like really good at uh, routing across AMM. And so now this is solver model. Um, after CowSwap, there is one inch fusion, there's Uniswap X. And um, you could see like starting from the left side on front end, Apparently, Uniswap is still the distribution power king, right? They have the highest uh, count of the volume of this seven-day chart. And then, but then going down, you could see like, um, for example, CowSwap's Sankey has different flow, not only from CowSwap front-end, but also from like Gnosis Safe, from DeFi Lama's flow. Um, so like, if you are measuring the power of router, it's different. It's like how many integration you have from left side, from the front-ends. Um, many other, for example, like uh, Xerox API or like Paraswap and OneInch, they also have a bunch of in in different integrators sending flow from different front ends. Um, and then going down, like if this is a solver model, you could see that there's uh, this layer of solver information that we labeled out, like Resolver, the T, OneInch Fusion, uh, OneInch one Lab, CYs, etc. for OneInch Fusion. And uh, we will have a deep, more clear view in like separate uh, Sankey. Um, but then you you going down, you could see like 
you know, like in the past, what we know is like we all just use Met MetaMask RPC and like sending towards Inferior Alchemy and everything goes to public mempool. But today with this chart, you can see like half of the retail trading volume actually goes through private mempool. And how is that happening? Um, then if you see the connection there, you can see, oh, all those private mempool volume are coming from those solver model. Because, you know, in those solver model case, uh, it's not a user submitting their order. It's actually the solver or basically the application submitting for you. So in this case, they have the control over, over how the order can go down the supply chain. And they will potentially, you know, probably send, send towards some uh, builder endpoints or even our order flow auction endpoints. Um, so to avoid the user transaction being attacked by MEV in the public mempool, if that makes sense. You know, like if you send because to that, public that, mempool, that would kind of imp would that impede on their profitability if they would not send this privately, or like what's their incentive to to do this privately? Right. Yeah. So first, sending to private mempool would avoid you know your transaction of a big trade on Uniswap being how to say monitored by some searcher, and they'd be like, oh, I'm gonna front run you or sandwiching you, and so to make profits. So sending privately can protect user from MEV to some level. Um, but also like you could, one thing I was going to show is here, like if you look at the CowSwap Sankey, they are deliberately sending toward private mempool and then towards map blocker, which is a order flow auction that a CowSwap team has released. Uh, so what does order flow auction do? It's a private RPC essentially, but also they have a, I would say like a list of searchers who are monitoring all the transaction coming into the private mempool and trying to background you. So background is one type of MEV that doesn't hurt users' prices because they're basically trying to add a trade after your trade. And so to make the arbitrage that coming out, how to say, that your order is making the price differences from. So like, you know, imagine you're a big trade user and you you're, after your order, this pool's price is going to be pushed up by so much that there is an arbitrage opportunity between this pool and all the other pool that you didn't use. And then at this, this time, the backrunner, they can make a trade here. And so to like just make the price, price the same and make profits from it. And order flow auction is more like a platform that guarantees basically the searchers is not going to harm you by like front running or sandwiching you, but only backrunning you and also going to give you a certain percentage of refund. So like, for example, um, MevShare has a default setting of like 90% profits going to user. Um, and I don't know what's the set for map blocker, uh, but basically here, if CowSwap is forwarding their order to map blocker, they're basically sending the flow to do another check on it. Say, is there any background opportunity? So potentially to add another price improvement on user, so that you know if user got a background, got a refund. Now you know basically ultimately the price they receive is better. Um, then even directly sending to the decks and direct sending to the solar model. So wait, can, can we so. can we walk this through one example? So I'm I want to yeah. swap a hundred or like let's say a hundred thousand die to ETH. I send that like I go to CowSwap. CowSwap yeah. actually sends that order. Like I I do my request for quote on CowSwap, and then from CowSwap that gets the the CowSwap solvers pick that up. They send it to the private mempool. From the private mempool it goes to Math blocker. The math blocker actually refunds me part of, or like it, it kind of checks if my transaction causes any background MEV or kind of positive externality MEV, and then up to ninety percent of that gets refunded to me as the actual like 
user, like small little user who's sitting at the very front of the chain. Because that, like in the end, that provides me with the best quote. Is that like correct? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So like uh, some nuances there is that like, for example, when you send to CowSwap and CowSwap's going to ping all these solvers and all these solvers going to give CowSwap some response, you know, maybe within like three seconds or 10 seconds. And then CowSwap be comparing the price and be like, okay, this solver is giving me the best price and CowSwap is sending for you. So not the solver is sending, but the CowSwap um, team is actually forwarding the mm. order. And then they, for so in this case, CowSwap team has a, you know, the full control and this forward towards a basically MEV blocker RPC endpoint. Like usually you send to inferior RPC. Now you're sending to their map blocker RPC. And now what map blocker RPC does is that they're going to stream out all those transaction information actually. And this RPC uh, streaming endpoint is actually public. So it's kind of still public, but um, the CowSwap team does something to trying to make sure it's, you know, not that easy to be attacked. Like, for example, they will simulate some fake transaction hash, transaction info to mix in it. And so the server can, the searcher cannot have full, you know, a certainty to be, be like, I'm going to like spend money to like front run this or something. And, but now, now with this public endpoint, any searcher supposedly can just check their, you know, check their, how to say, uh, a MEV strategy, like checking back running. If there is any back running uh, opportunity, If so, they'll be like, okay, I want to make this background transaction together with these users. And so I'm going to send this two transactions together as a bundle. So bundle is basically just like a set of transactions that's like next to each other. Um, and so the searcher is going to forward this bundle to MapBlocker back. Say, I want to lend this bundle. And then I'm also going to give user like 90% out of my profits, which is like 0.5 ETH, say. And um, do you want, can you help me lend this? And so MapBlocker gonna basically forward all this bundle towards the builder. And then builder is the one, you know, in PBS, like today in, in proposal builder uh, separation word, uh, that is like, how to say, uh, merging all this bundle into a block. So um, yeah, that's how it goes. Well, so, another question. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got all this data, how did you actually come up with, uh, with uh, how did you get there? Like, what, what is, the, is it just tagging from like following transactions or I'm guessing you also monitor the public mempool to see what transaction make it there or? Yeah, pretty much. So like some something that's crazy is that actually all these are constructed in queries in Dune. So like mm, primarily in the beginning, we were just using dex.trace table because we were like, you know, like the initial idea is really just labeling the router. Like basically want, I want to see mm -hmm. like if this aggregator is connecting to that AMM later. And later we were like, yeah, we actually can expand it to see the whole supply chain. Um, so we integrated the, the mempool dumpster data set from Flashbots and it's now actually uh, uploaded on Dune so anyone can query it just by checking if the transaction hash is in the public mempool or not. So if it's seen in public mempool, then it went through public mempool, um, which yeah. that data set was like checking five different node sources. And then um, later we were just mapping with like the map blocker data set and also the flashbot protect data set to see if that hash was ever in those OFA. And then like we're labeling just the block, um, in which block those transactions landed and then label the builder of the block. So yeah, everything is on chain actually, uh, except the mempool part, but which also is now. Yeah. You know. yeah, yeah, of course. And we have like a methodology page uh, that's like detailing all these uh, nuances of the accounting that we do because like for example one big debate in dex trading data accounting is that like 
a uh, lot of time the router they will spill it up a pair that's pretty illiquid say you're you want to trade um, actually i guess paper is pretty liquid today like let's say you want to tra trade like adobe to boxer right and then there is no liquidity provider is providing this pair in the amm pool so the router will have have to spill it up to like I'm gonna try to make a trade of Dolby to West and then West to Boxer. Maybe. Yeah. So there gotta be someone who's doing this pair. And in this case, when you if you're accounting just like some of the uh, trading volume, it will be doubled. So um, what we try to do is like when we try to really represent what's the retail traffic or demand side, we did the deduping by just checking you know um, what's the in and out amount and then trying to like just account once from the in and out say how much amount user received or how much user sent out and the retail liquidity impact version so the liquidity version is fine like we don't care about the duping we'll just like sum up all those trading volume that happened in the event log if that makes sense so because it still you know represents how much liquidity that each pool is able to provide um so we have to be you know pretty careful about these um, so yeah, um, I think this is a very interesting that like these Sankey, if you like filter by each project, you can see those structure. Like for example, if you look at CallSwap, it's pretty clear what does a solver model mean. Like you see all these solver winning some volume, probably because their strengths on different trading pair. Um, you see Uniswap X is also like having different, um, how to say, uh, they call it filler. So you see different filler and it's very interesting to see you know, a lot of these filler are directly just labeled as market maker. So that's what we were mm -hmm. expecting, right? Like you know, market maker is competing and winning the order on Uniswap X auction. If not, then it fall back to a Dutch auction to like AMM um, as well. And so like concerning thing here is like, for example, Wintermute has one market maker is winning over 50% of trade uh, trading volume. The second and third is also market maker. Um, and something else also interesting is that um, there's also a lot of like nuance of um, like how the landscape has been complicating. Um, we know that market maker oftentimes stands behind a router. So like, for example, this Matcha Xerox example is a very clear example where you see Matcha is a front end and Xerox API is an aggregator. And you could see like they're just like routing through either Xerox RFQ or a bunch of AMM. And all these like market maker are standing behind the Xerox RFQ. So like right here, I don't know why it's zoomed out, uh, but like with some new innovation projects in like, for example, Hashflow, they are basically, they have a website, but they're primarily a, how to say, middle layer for a lot of market makers. You could see that a lot of solvers who are, you know, very small team, like two people, they develop this algorithm to merge or sourcing across AMM. They don't really have a platform kind of team to talk to market maker or to talk to many market makers. And now Hashflow becomes so useful as a, like an intermediary to provide liquid market maker quotes as an RFQ system for all those like solver. Um, they also are behind our one inch aggregator router as well and Paraswap. So um, that's interesting to see this structure in the landscape that's hidden usually. Um, something else also interesting is like you see like in the past, usually market maker stands behind RFQ, but now they're like so smart. They're trying to remove all the layers of fee you know, those are aggregator can potentially charge them. So you see now like SCP just go directly to MetaMask 
um, like go to the you know order flow owner directly and try to say, hey, just ping us, don't ping the mar aggregators. And where we will have to be charged, but with fee, meaning we will have to you know provide like a less competitive price. If you go us directly, this direct integration, we probably can quote you better price. So it's who, like this who is SCP? It's a MEV trading firm um, th that also does market making, that also build blogs, that also search. So yeah, it's pretty <laughs> okay. uh, And how how do you think like that could like do you think they just reached out to MetaMask and they're like, hey, just give us some of your retail flow? Like how how do you get them to that? I don't position? know how that happened, but I I believe so. I think so. Like I think they have. Like with all these tr volume that they are covering and all these like you know um, market share they have in each layer, it's very compelling with data. Like, hey, just quote us. We're the biggest market maker on Xerx RFQ, or we're the biggest yeah. market maker yeah. on on it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah so sense. if anyone's interested, um, there's like a whole methodology page to like really elaborate on, on like what's the definition and everything. We also linked all those queries. So anyone, if you're a you know, SQL monkey or wizard, can go and figure out. You can also use this data sets. Um, also, my teammate, Angela, she also posted like a very comprehensive piece about all these you know, stats as a summary and like very opinionated take you know, overall. Because what we see from all this landscape is that you know, DeFi is not really DeFi, it's CDFi. And like all these market maker that's off-chain coding and potentially it's also, you know, trying to, uh, that is kind of like monopolies to these days, like covering all these like order flow power. Um, so yeah, um, very interesting stuff. I think it's uh, the, the, the piece by Angela is really, really good. I recommend like people read it. And even like, you've got even more, like this is an insane amount of work, by the way. Uh, I think like, I don't know, uh, for people who made dashboard, like this is quite the work. And you've even got more like on the front ends and like other like June charts embedded. Like it's, yeah, it's wild. Yeah, very cool. Well, work. Maybe one one question that kind of arose for me: um, Is there like individual ecosystems that are kind of forming around like CowSwap, and then there's one inch, and I guess Uniswap is now, or is this is this like the same teams competing in like just different arenas? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because it's like I mean, initially CowSwaps really started this ecosystem of Solver, and I believe like all they did was really really go into all the Cacosong and encourage people to do do this, you know, hackathon. And like um, later when there's more team is adopting this solver model, all those people were like, you know, yeah, oh, we can also solve on one inch. So it at the end of the day, it's actually a similar set of people. It's like a bunch of independent team of solvers plus market makers. And because all these businesses are similar, I would say like routing, someone is also solving, is someone also searching. So like, you know, um, for market makers, um, they also like to, you know, go directly towards the order flow owner. So that makes sense for them. And they also want to be in the end of the order flow because mm -hmm. then they have last look to how to ar arrange and uh, construct their uh, trades. So they also want to be block builder. So what we were seeing like pretty much in the past recent months was like, everyone wants to be a solver, also wants to be a, you know, block builder. Um, also who are probably also market maker. So, yeah. Kind of horizontal integration across the landscape. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I see. That sounds like centralization risks. Um, so, yep. Yep. isn't that like one of the big critiques of TradFi that, like, on if I trade on Robinhood, my order flow is getting sold to 
I don't know the trading firm anymore, but there's like one big trading firm who's basically like the cabal who's like running all of these. Yeah. And that's exactly, you know, the blog post was talking about. It's like, you know, it's, we're all going back to TradFi and like DeFi really trying to decentralize the finance. But like one, I think very spicy take from there was like, you know, Uniswap X, when it was about to come out, people was ex expecting it to be, you know, one step further to be DeFi. But really, they kind of took a step back towards, you know, integrating market maker trades and somewhat make it like a little bit CeFi. So yeah, that was a pretty spicy take there. I think it makes sense, but I would argue slightly back that like user did benefit from it. Like market maker was able to provide a more competitive price for users. So, um, yeah, we don't know. I, I yeah, guess like it's like a transparent version of like you're you're getting like maybe winter like winter mute is fifty percent of Uniswap X or some like that's what I remember or fifty percent of the. Mm -hmm. Yeah, volume mm -hmm. of the yeah. front end or Uniswap X, I don't remember anymore. But as long as it's transparent that they are filling me for a certain quote and the system decided this way because they are just offering the best quotes and all of the like the, the Uniswap V3 pools are actually like a worse option for me as an end user, then I guess that's actually like a good thing, no? Entity that's on chain and so saying that's in Uniswap's yeah. hand. Like maybe Uniswap be like, you know, how whatever the volume comes from this market maker, I'm gonna charge five bips. And then in this case, I'm going to favoring, you know, the volume console market mm -hmm. maker, discounting it compared to AMM. So that, that part needs to be transparent to really make, you know, convincing, I think. So yeah, that I makes think sense. Like where, where does this infrastructure run today? Is it just Uniswap server somewhere? I think so. Like right now, any RFQ system is off chain, um, but overall the direction is that I think like some people were proposing, you know, on chain decentralizing block building, decentralizing like RFQ auctioning. That will be the, you know, the real ultimate transparency comes from. All right. Is that, Hilda, do we have any more questions for the MEV order flow uh, DEX mm -hmm. landscape? I think, well, I think if we like, I have questions, but it's like a, a whole other discussion on like propose a build a separation and going that deeper in, in there. I don't think like we, it's probably not, like the right moment to cover it but like a whole other episode i think it would be cool yeah all right um yeah thanks for um this chart of the week and uh, the very elaborate uh, uh explanation of of the same um that was really interesting so um next up we have a, we have a couple topics so um dobby why don't you get us started with uh inscriptions and why inscriptions are still a thing and why people think <laughs> that storing things in call data is the future that's a really good question um i think we can start by like rolling back to how it all started first and that is let me share my screen uh okay so that is with like ordinals on bitcoin which popped up uh early 2023 late 2022 and they basically, on a really short, uh, concise way, they're like NFTs on Bitcoin. And those are basically inscribed within uh, a Satoshi, which is the smallest unit of a Bitcoin. And here we can see the dashboard from Data Always, which is really good. And you you can see how those have maintained uh, traction throughout the year. Uh, and they keep um, filling a lot of Bitcoin blocks and actually generating, I think, a lot of revenue towards miners. So they've been... Uh, you know, controversial because a lot of people say, yeah, it's not within the ethos of 
Bitcoin in the first place, and it's not what Bitcoin was built for. But the thing is, you know, what can happen will happen, and people are doing it, and I think miners are happy about it. So there's there's a positive. And previously, the whole miner revenue, I think, was solely reliant on like, well, I mean, uh, very very heavily reliant on um, on on um, new bitcoins, on yeah, on on new bitcoins being uh, being created, and this actually. Uh, tips the balance a bit better towards uh, transaction fees also uh, helping miners. And I think it's a lot, lot more sustainable for the long term to have these models within Bitcoin. Um, I think it's still early to tell like where we'll go from there, but uh, it's been interesting to see to see that happening. And in, well, maybe uh, you, in a... you, you, mentioned, you mentioned that people have been storing images or like documents, but there, there's like a other development where people actually start like doing more programmatic like use cases, yeah. maybe you can explain those really quick. Yeah, yeah. there's also somewhat like layer two. I'm not the most familiar with how those applications on Bitcoin actually work, but they essentially are trying to mimic what's happening on uh, uh, blockchains like EVM chains, such as Ethereum and, and mimicking uh, smart contract compatibility. But it's not really, you know, it wasn't made for it. So it is all happening. Uh, the, the rules for indexing are all off chain and then, you know, while well, the data and the metadata is posted on chain, which is the difference to, to, to uh, compared to EVMs, where EVMs the metadata isn't always on chain. Um, you know the, the the whole the ruling and how uh, the consensus on how those work. This is all taken off chain, and there's the Ordinals protocol. Uh, I think um, that you can look you can look into, uh, and yeah. But I think this this wasn't really you know this is kind of like old news somewhat. It's not really uh, the noble thing, uh, although they've been maintaining like traffic so far, nothing crazy has happened. Uh, I think the leading teams are uh, um, uh, Bitcoin wizards. Uh, they're also launching another collection, so there's some interesting stuff. They raised some money last year, so there is there is some traction. We'll see if like that keeps going and where we go Isn't from here. Tap, taproot wizards? Do you mean taproot wizards? Yeah, sorry, taproot wizards. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and they have OP cats. I think is a new thing, mm -hmm. but I've, I haven't read too much about it, so don't want to say anything I don't know about. But um, yeah, but I, yeah. I think it's a stretch to say nothing crazy has happened. I think this is literally no, no, a, sorry, a, a, I, I, a new I mean, a new market segment. Like nothing, nothing new crazy has happened. But I think like yeah, yeah, in yeah. general, like people have found like I don't know they they've been trying to like find a new use case for the Bitcoin blockchain, or like I guess they have found, and one of that was like storing images, and then people started kind of like minting shit coins or like supposedly also sometimes legit coins on the Bitcoin blockchain. So I think like that's that's something pretty crazy that happened. And I think no, it's, I like a, I it's a giant, giant industry that has like billions in trading volume so far. So um, I, I do think it's, it's quite it's quite the news. No, I agree. Like like what I mean is that all this happened like throughout the past year, but like in the very recent term, there hasn't been like crazy developments, but there has like generated like 220 million dollars worth of fees and that's pretty wild you know it's like quite a bit of traction uh i'm just curious about like where we go from here and i think it's worth like taking a you know keeping a keeping a track on uh on this data um but yeah this isn't this is more of like where this is more of the intro of what i wanted to get at which is that those have also been moving to um, EVM chains uh, recently, I think in, in November, December, uh, 2023, they started popping up and they've been quite prominent. And 
I think, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's kind of absurd because I think like, you know, those chains have, uh, like smart contract compatibilities. There's tokens that have been defined like long ago and, and work really well and have the full indexing, like working properly on the blockchain. Uh, this is basically sending, uh, JSON metadata, a uh, little packet, uh, little, little, um, a little bit of info in, in, in Jensen, uh, uh, formats on the, in the core data of transactions, uh, which makes them very, very cheap. And that's basically the only advantage that I know of. Um, otherwise, you know, it's like for indexing, you need to have rules that are defined, uh, off chain. Like I said before, just like for Bitcoin. And it's, it's kind of not everything is as easy, I think, to fetch for, well, analysts like us and for everyone, you know, building on top. It's not as easy to integrate within protocols. Um, I mean, the blockchains were basically not made for this, with this in mind. Uh, it's kind of like the user who has taken the leads and is like, oh, well, this is cheaper. And it's like, I can also, you know, the, on the, on the short term, um, there's probably some speculation frenzy happening. Uh, but if you look at what, ha what is happening is, uh, in, if we zoom back on like uh, weekly view in November and December, it really happened quite a bit. There was quite a few inscriptions. I think Avalanche was the, the one with the, the most, uh, inscriptions where, you know, gas was taking, uh, like 30% in, in some weeks, uh, with, that was just inscriptions, although they're cheap. So, you know, you needed a lot of, um, transactions for those to cost, uh, high gas amounts. And you can even see below how that affected transaction counts. So you saw like some blockchain posting, uh, Hey, we actually had like an all time high in transactions. But it was basically all led by um, inscriptions. And you can see all these all-time highs. So Gorley, Ethereum, Arbitrum, ZKSync, Neosis, BNB, Phantom, Shello, uh, Avalanche, Polygon. All these had an all-time high within sometimes the last year or early, early this year. And it was all with like, almost all with like 80% plus uh, of those transactions being inscriptions. So it's like when the big wave happened. Um, so they're somewhat easy to filter out if you know what you're doing. So you just filter out, you know, if you just want to look at like transactions in a comparable amount to before, uh, you can filter them out. And the reason I filter them out is because, you know, being, you know, it's, it's, uh, the blockchain is limited, constrained by the block space. So with them costing so little in block space and so little in, uh, in gas, uh, it's much easier to have a lot of those than a lot of, uh, smart contract based transactions. Um, yeah. And then lately it's still happening quite a bit, I think relative to November, December. So if you look at this chart here, you can see it's down a lot, but actually it's also because this was like very, very high. If you look within last 24 hours, Gorley, which is a, which is a test net, uh, is having over 85% of transactions being inscriptions. Uh, so here you can see this, this huge spike, uh, I think it's pretty popular, or at least it was up until. Yesterday was again pop really popular on uh, ZK Sync, Arbitrum, and some of the OP chains based on Optimism. Uh, it kind of fluctuates. I don't fully, to be honest, I, I don't mean, really does, fully does understand. Does anyone understand the what's 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 going on here? Like, what what are people <laughs> even doing? Like, once they once these tokens are yeah. minted, or I guess like what, yeah. what yeah. like yeah. is there a wallet that even supports them? Like, what are people doing with this stuff? The, I think there, it's you... it's very primitive for now, but maybe. It's mostly, it seems mostly to be Asian communities, which I have less of an eye on. Um, I don't know, maybe Danning, you have some, some things to share there. 
Hey, I briefly scroll through those chats, and it seems like I mean people are very you know ex excited and obsessed about it. It was like it seems like people really made money from it. Uh, from and it seems like they're just like minting it and trying to make profits from it. But I didn't fully understand where even the secondary markets are. Like, does Gorly have a inscription market? I guess. <laughs> Uh, that's so really yeah. good question. Yeah, I have, that's, I have no like, idea. Yeah, we need to know. We need to know if there's somebody I, out there who knows. Like we are, we're all ears. <laughs> like this is when, it's mystery. When I was looking to them, I saw like marketplaces on like Polygon, BNB, uh, probably zk -Sync. There's like some cross chain ones as well, but I don't know about test nets. That seems I don't know. That seems wild. I and, mean, somebody can probably deploy like the contracts. On the yeah, yeah, test of course. Net, I guess so. Like, yeah, but yeah. like, yeah, you, you need to have like a whole website and everything. I don't know. Like, none of this really seems to make sense. Like, this is like maybe it kind of reminds me of like NFT minting in 2021, I guess, where like every yeah. like you just like somebody would post a like link in a group chat and you'd just be like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'll I'll mint this. <laughs> like, just like we'll we'll see what happens. And and maybe that's that's the approach that most of these people do you know like can you break down the transactions by like mint move like mint yes. transfer yeah. and like delete I guess or like however like yeah, whatever yeah. else is out there. For now, this this data is all tra all inscriptions combined because I think you know as on the first uh, thing to look at is probably the, the the first bit interesting and then you can break it down. There's transfers before you can have transfers. You also have mints and before mints you also have deploy events. Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, you create the deploy events just like you would deploy a smart contract uh, token on uh, an EVM chain and you define the base building blocks, basically saying, okay, this is the max supply. Uh, you can mint X per wallet at a time. Um, and what is the symbol and stuff like this. And then once you go on mint it, I think you reference the symbol uh, that, that is the identifier for the uh, inscription. Yeah. You define how many you're minting uh, and stuff like that. And then there's transfers. And yeah, I, I mean, think there's, of, of there's course, even like more, the but... call data needs to be structured in some kind of way. But have, yeah. you, have you looked at the data of like how much of this is mints and how much of this is transfers and how much of this is just I haven't or looked something? like within the past like few weeks, but I looked uh, late last year and it was still uh, overwhelmingly mints. Yeah. It was basically almost all mints. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, I think... I would expect, uh, we can look back at this uh, next week or, or sometimes, but um, I think maybe uh, transfers are on the rise. Hopefully that would be like the, the, the you know, that would be the, the sound development where, you know, there's marketplaces and stuff happening like this. Um, but yeah, I don't have much of a picture there. It's also, a you know, because... A sign of maturation in the shitcoin market. Let's go. <laughs> there's also something you take for granted is like all the smart contracts, you know, you can't have like fake events, right? Here, like anyone can put anything with the call data. So when you're indexing, you can actually, you know, you have so many edge cases, all the possible edge cases you've, you can think of, they're there. And that's also why, like, uh, if you look on, like, even on Dune, like, um, uh, ordinals haven't been really properly indexed yet, although that could be done, you know, but it's like, there's so many edge cases, try to look into it and I'll have it eventually. But, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a, it's quite yeah. a piece of work. Uh, I also, I, like we talked about before, it's like I'm not really familiar with a lot of people who use those. So it's kind of hard to really get a sense of what is going on uh, other than looking like transactions on the blockchain. Uh, like wh who are those people? What are they doing with it? Um, yeah.
Yeah, one one ridiculous argument I saw was like, you know, because there is no smart contract, it, then it's more secure or safe, as they say, because there's no contract vulnerability and there's no rock. So I don't, uh, yeah. I don't quite understand that. Interesting. But there's From... also no composability. Like you can literally do nothing. Like, can I put up a BRC20 as a collateral in Aave? Like, I, I don't think so. <laughs> like, how, how, how would that ever work? Um uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a strange world. Um, we like would be really interesting to talk to someone who actually knows what's going on. But I I, I think those people are far far and few in between. And uh, yeah, we'll yeah. we'll see we'll see if we ever learn more about this. Yeah, uh, I think I think like just like ordinals, I think we need monitor it because I I don't think it's gonna you know go away for good. I think there will probably be some use case we haven't thought of. Uh, that makes sense. I think one thing that could be cool is like for um, mints and you know how uh, I don't know if you remember the uh, other side mint from Yuga Labs, which clocked the the whole blockchain. Basically, all of Ethereum was like crazy high fees and no one could use it. It's like it was like one Ethereum to pay for gas uh, throughout that day, which was crazy. And so for uh, like minting mechanics, since you can actually limit per transaction. Uh, the number of mints you can have much, you know, in a much more precise way. It's kind of complicated in how it works, but you can, you can basically, there's different mechanisms that could allow for different things to happen. Uh, Eric Wall did a, did a thread on this, like, uh, in, um, in December. And I think it was pretty interesting. I don't, I don't think we're even close to seeing like those new use cases for now. It's just like speculative frenzy from what I can tell, but, uh, you know, maybe we'll get there at some point and there's some interesting things that come out of this so you're saying like just leaving something in call data as like a method of signaling that you want to yeah. mint something in the future yeah, like yeah. Some, some yeah basically for the minting distribution for the mint distribution and then you can migrate to an actual erc20 or erc721 or whatever uh but like yeah. for the initial distribution uh if you look at like you know past mints it's been very well heavy in terms of how it's distributed it's, it's not yeah, like it's I not like anyone can, you know, like it's not as easy to participate for retail with uh, who just wants to mint one or something. So I I think this has, you know, some potential. Uh, but yeah, this is more like, you know, theoretical right now than anything. Uh, I don't think uh, you can see anything of this kind of happening on chain right now. Speaking of but yeah, Bitcoin. I think, uh, sorry. Uh, I wanted to transition to the Bitcoin ETF. Oh, right. Yeah. So on another topic, which is a bit more recent, uh, I looked into Bitcoin ETFs, which were uh, approved by the SEC on January 10th, I believe, of this year. And since then, there's been 10 different Bitcoin ETFs, which have gone live. Um, one of them is Grayscale's uh, GBTC, which is actually converted from their bit, uh, the, the trust that they had before since uh, I believe 20, uh, sometimes earlier in like mid 2019. Um, and I wanted to track those on chain because I think that's the interesting bit relative to, you know, other ETS where you can only see what is being reported. Uh, but here you can actually, you know, look into the addresses and see what is going on, what are the flows. Uh, and there's some interesting bits there. So first of all, uh, most of those, nine out of 10 of those have not disclosed their addresses. Only Bitwise has. Uh, 
which I think is a really cool move to to do. And uh, like you know, it's it's a good like um, if you use the, the blockchain, you might as well prove that the assets are there. Especially like in the wake of like uh, you know, we had FTX uh, like still a few months back, and it was all about like proof of funds not really being there. If it was there, it would be you know people would have made would have been aware about this much earlier. Uh, so I think proof of funds is generally something that a lot of custody platforms should uh, be forced into disclosing, um, but we we are not there yet. So I think I appreciate Bitwise's effort to actually disclose this. And for the rest, um, Arkham has uh, shared uh, the addresses they found uh, for all the others. They did it for Grayscale, I think, in September last year, and they shared that it was one of the biggest Bitcoin holders at the time. Um, and these, I think like seven out of 10 of those are using uh, Coinbase custody. And so they have a specific way they, you know, the, the, the wallets, uh, the flows between wallets work. And basically there's like, for Grayscale, there's like 10 new wallets that are created per day. Uh, and they, there's a specific flow. So for, I, I believe Alchem has systems where they monitor this automatically and automatically tag new addresses. Uh, I want to eventually work towards a system where I have like this uh, publicly available and, and having this uh, heuristics-based identifier uh, in a query. I haven't gone there because I'm not as familiar with Bitcoin data as with uh, EVM data, but uh, I think it's it's something we we can eventually have, and that would be like super cool. There's also like obviously the what I mentioned before of like uh, Coinbase custody or uh, the issuers of those ETFs uh, providing um, all addresses some way, uh, you know, through an API or whatever, because unfortunately it's not like Bitwise has a single address. I think Venek as well, Franklin Templeton and, and Wisdom Tree as well. But uh, the rest, you know, they keep creating like 10 new addresses per day. So I've been uh, adding addresses like multiple times a day to this query, which is for now has like 2000 different addresses. And that's how I track everything in my dashboard. Um, and so, oh wait, you can't see when I click. Wait, <laughs> share this tab instead. So here is the query, and you can see uh, all the two thousands also addresses uh, that I've tagged so far. Uh, but yeah, it's you know it keeps on being. Uh, I, I keep on appending new addresses. Uh, I even have people reach out uh, saying, "Hey, you're missing this address. Can you add this one? Can you add this one?" Which I think is pretty cool. So collaborative work um and then uh so so yeah we, other than disclosures in terms of data there's something pretty cool that i wanted to share uh let me see which tab it is before, before you move uh, away from the, this dash like yeah, maybe yeah. newbie question so how does this work like i thought all these are issuers of bitcoin etf and so meaning like they are buying bitcoin and they're you know, like having this thing you can buy on their website as Bitcoin ETF, or can you buy it on chain or it's more like a, just the exchange you buy on their platform? It's like a way for TradFi to have access to Bitcoin. So, you know, like, right. you know how the, in the, like the 401k in the US and stuff like financials products like this, you can get exposure to it. You can get exposure to Bitcoin uh, on those now using those issuers, which was previously not really possible. It's just basically bringing Bitcoin within TradFi uh, rails and for it to be like for people to be able to leverage it 
within currently existing like TreadFi products. For uh, US, that's my understanding. Yeah, yeah. This is you. these are all uh, US issuers. There is even okay. there's actually like ETFs from uh, um, other countries that were approved by other countries, but they're much smaller. Uh, okay. I don't know about Bitcoin. I think Ethereum has some. I'm guessing Bitcoin must have as well. Uh, but I, I know way less on those. So um, yeah, but they've been approved in other countries. Uh, it's just that US is, you know, it's a big part of the market. Um, yeah, okay, so, so that's like, why it's so this, important. This flow chart though, like I see, it seems like Grayscale is all outflow and all the other are like yeah. inflow. Does that yeah, mean so like, how is like there are, the others are all like buying in yet and the Grayscale is selling pretty good already or? So Grayscale is like, it's a whole different, uh, you know, it, it has a bigger history to it. And, you know, it was, it was a trust holding before it was, it was born in sometimes in 2019 and what you will see. So here are the uh, holdings of, uh, Grayscale addresses. So you can see them increasing in terms of, uh, amounts up until, um, February, 2021, where it kind of stalls and then like slowly bleeds for a few years uh, up until now and the reason the way that is is if i share this tab is because uh it was not trading at uh exact value for bitcoin so when it was traded at a premium everyone wanted to redeem them and wanted to mint some more essentially uh but once you know it started trading below uh bitcoin's net asset value no one wants to issue some you know no one wants to take some new ones anymore um so that's why that's why you see like how it perfectly matches the premium to nav charts uh, here is that clear what is the premium yeah, super, what is that super interesting um <laughs> no it's it's like it, there's a premium on the on the price of the etf relative to the price of bitcoin oh. so if if it's like positive you know you want to hold gbtc because that means now you know it's it's more valuable than the um, amount of Bitcoin it's it's tied to, uh, but once it's like the opposite, like no one could, um, no one could, um, could, uh, how do you say? Uh, there's there was no outflow for it, uh, but people were stuck holding it uh, up until it was finally approved for conversion for an ETF uh, yeah. on the 10th of January this year, uh, and that's why you see on the very I don't know if you can see here. But on the very last part of this graph, you can see the, the start of a decrease. And that's because people were starting to finally redeem uh, yeah. those underlying Bitcoins. Got it. I see. Um, actually, so redemption were quite large in flows early on, but it's starting to, you know, it's starting to decrease a little. Um, for today, I still need to probably add some wallets. I need to... You know, after this, I'll go and add some new wallets. Uh, so maybe there's some things missing. But, you know, up until yesterday, up until here, should be very accurate. And um, you can see the flow starting to decrease. Also, in the same way, when the other ETFs launched, they had an early, you know, high amounts of inflow. Uh, it's, it's starting to cool down a little. Uh, and, you know, maybe we'll reach an equilibrium where, you know, there's a more stable uh, inflow over time. Uh, we're still like two weeks in, so it's it's hard to to fully see where we'll go from here. But what's what's impressive is like this this was already mostly true with uh, with just GBTC, but it's like over three percent of all bitcoins, which is quite a bit. Uh, but you know, 
it was like 1 billion of inflows over the past week. But if you if exclude Grayscale, if you just look at the others, it's like 6.3. Uh, so it is quite a bit, but uh, it'll probably have, you know, it'll very likely have a, a long-term impact on the Bitcoin supply. There's actually uh, something which is really cool is um, 21 shares made a dashboard where they share all the data using on-chain. The next step, obviously, is to share the addresses, but uh, we'll see if that ever happens. Um, but yeah. There's probably uh, some compliance reasons or something why they wouldn't want to share their addresses. So there is some address, there's some reasons here. I don't know if you can read on these. So there's dusting attacks that they are afraid of uh, because, you know, it's uh, now you need to disclose all those holdings. Yeah, you know, KYC you stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm less, I understand a little less on the two other points oper operational security measures because I'm guessing. You know, maybe once you know the addresses, maybe you're more vulnerable. But is that really true? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, like geopolitical, geopolitical risks, I'm not too sure uh, again on. Uh, I would say the dusting attacks are probably the most annoying one because yeah. like, you need to disclose those, you know, those assets. Um, but yeah, I'm obviously I, I don't work in, uh, I haven't worked uh, for an ETF issuer, so <laughs> I don't necessarily know the full picture. Uh, yeah, they yeah. they probably have their reasons. Like, let's not. Yeah, yeah no, no, of course, let's no. Not, I, let's I, not no. beat them, beat them down oh, for it. Um, I hundred percent. I, I think. Yeah, I I think just to just to close the story out. So, um, the reason why there's big outflows out of Grayscale is because they have not adjusted their fee tiers to be competitive to all the other issuers. So maybe if you can switch back to the other tab real quick. Um, I think since we've now talked about this so long, to to kind of close the loop on the story. So there's a bunch of these different issuers. I think, how many is it, Toby? 10? 10. There's 10 different issuers. They all have different fee tiers. And the fee tiers, basically, if they hold your Bitcoin for a year, they're going to take 1. like 1.5% 1. or 150 basis points of your money just for holding the Bitcoin. So that's like, it's a ridiculously high fee, especially for a product that you could theoretically self-custody. So a lot of people are actually kind of like taking advantage of these ETFs because like, I think in the US, especially, there's like a lot of tax advantages and like it's easier to access for boomers and like for corporations and all of this stuff. Um, so they are fine to take the risk or like, uh, to take the downside of paying 0 0.2 or 20 basis points um, in fees to the issuers. Um, so to BlackRock or to, to Fidelity or something, um, just so they can use their like traditional financial roads. So, but because Grayscale already has this like giant uh, net asset value or like this, this giant like deposits of Bitcoin, they're like, I think they're just riding this out like while they can. So they're like earning the 1.5% 1. fees on uh, 20 billion, which is, that's, that's quite a lot of revenue. Um, so like, they're just like, kind of like, they're slowly bleeding out. I don't think they really care about bleeding out. And eventually like as they, as the market reaches an equilibrium, I guess they'll also lower their fees. But for now, I think they're just like, they're just like, why should we lower our fees? Like people, people are not prone to like, I don't know, like roll their investments around like every five months. Like there's some active investors, what you, what you can see here, who are like actually like they're price sensitive and they've rolled around their investments. But there just seem to be a lot of people who are like, I believe that Bitcoin goes up two or three X. I don't care about this one, like these 150 basis points that they're charging me in fees. Or like, at least that would be my assumption that this is like the belief that these people are in. Or maybe it's also like a tax reason where like, if I convert this to like a Franklin Templeton uh, ETF, then I've 
technically sold my bitcoins once so like i can't really like do this without like having to pay a lot of taxes so there's like a lot of like diverse reasons why grayscale still has that man that much that asset value um in the end like it's a very weird like business decisions or like i i don't think like it's a weird state of the industry that like grayscale um yeah has has that big of a market share and it's all like kind of historical and in the end i guess you can kind of blame the sec because they approved the grayscale whatever fund like vehicle that like was carrying bitcoin before and they didn't approve anyone else so they basically like created a monopoly um so like that just like as like the whole story to this dashboard um but i think like one of the main things here is like it's like tradfi data fucking sucks and this is actually like one of the best data sources for flows in in the bitcoin etfs that that I, we currently have so like i have it, two it, other that's points really that's really cool i have two other points the first thing for the first six months all the fees are waived actually uh other than for grayscale so it's actually zero percent but this is like the long-term fee that they've planned and will be uh okay. you know will be defined in a bit and actually comparing to try tradfi i wanted to show something quickly um and basically if you look uh before the SEC had made it so that you should disclose, uh, you should have the, the transaction settle at the maximum two days later. Uh, I think it was in February, 2023 that changed it. So it was only one day later. So now you can see how these are the reported flows and those are actually matching by one day later, the on-chain flows. So this is like one week day later relative to the previous graph. This is from the block. Um, I think we'll link all the sources mm -hmm. in the description as well for for people to to see but yeah i think uh this this was pretty interesting too because it's like the only one where you can really see this settlement uh time wow so tradfi just takes a day to settle all your trades or like that's yeah I, I guess i get yeah i guess they would technically be able to do it faster but they probably for some for some reason or another it's probably more profitable or better for them to to like max out the the time between like the trade intention and like actually settling the trade. Yeah, it's it's also all within like Coinbase custody. So yeah. technically, you know, they, they mark it as like settled, but they move on like on chain afterwards. Uh, they just have one maximum one day to do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, I see. Maybe there, there was one more thing. Like, do you have any inclination why some of these have like a thousand addresses for like one Bitcoin ETF? Like that just seems very strange. It's, I don't know, they're like, they keep moving addresses. I think it's like maximum 1000 Bitcoin per address for Grayscale. Uh, mm. It's a good, I, I don't know this. I mean, I, yeah, you'd need to know more about how Coinbase custody works. Um, it's also, you know, a question I've had for like e-staking and like Coinbase where they created like one address for every single uh, 32 ETH validator. And that was like very costly and gas. Uh, but that's, I mean, you know, they could have gone for like one address instead and that would be much cheaper. Um, but I guess it's like overall, security, security risks. Yeah, I'm it's guessing it's diversifying the like the funds security, right? It's like if you're holding yeah. shit ton of Bitcoin in one yeah, address yeah. and you this is yeah. then you're done. But then if you put them to be like small amount, another thing is like, I think uh, it might be easier for them to manage the deposits. So like, if you are depositing to a thousand people, then you can do it at the same time across different wallets rather than like do it across a longer time from just one wallet, one by one, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's just the, the 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 interesting thing is just how it's 
I'm pretty sure they're the only ones doing this. You know, other custody platforms. Um, there's one of the ETFs which uh, is custodied by Gemini, Gemini, and they uh, they have a single address and that's it. And well, that's much easier for analysts, obviously. So that's nice. But uh, I don't know what are the different implications. I'm guessing, like you say, you know, like security measures are different. But if you store, you know, it, it's all about how you store access to all these addresses that matters. And, you know, that sounds very, very complex of a system to have. Yeah. Again, I guess we, we're not the experts and like, no, no, just, of course. like if you look at the, if you look at the on-chain data, it looks very strange, but like, if you think about it, like one step deeper, you're like, yeah, this might actually make a lot of sense. Um, it's just, yeah, it, it's always odd to like encounter these things and then, uh, yeah, actually get to them. Um, do we have anything more to add to the Bitcoin ETF? Um, saga story. no I, I don't know i think there's uh, rumors of ETTF happening at some point maybe i think on like poly market it's like a 40 percent uh like bet on on it happening uh before like end of may so we'll see if that happens i don't know it'll be interesting if it does uh either way i think it's you know it's a few months away at most probably uh maybe that's just maybe having like that's just hopeful think thinking but uh <laughs> You know, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see how how uh, how slow or fast the SEC is in allowing these things, and if they even want to allow it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess we can move on to the final story of the day, which is I think the Jupiter airdrop has gone live as we record this, or shortly before we started recording this. Um, so in in front of this Jupiter airdrop, there was a lot of uh, kind of interesting. Uh, comments on Twitter and uh, <laughs> like let, let, let's call it interesting. So uh, I I do kind of take an issue with how um, people are comparing the trading volumes of uh, the trading volumes and like general transaction volumes of different chains to each other um, because I think fundamentally there's economic costs associated with transactions on especially Ethereum mainnet and like to some extent like Bitcoin or something like this and. As the fee structure of a chain changes, so like the SVM is, or like the SVM, to explain, uh, the Solana virtual machine is very much a chain that has very low fees. So it's very easy to actually fake transactions. Um, so I, I, I think like this is almost like the chart crime of the week. Um, so it's not really in charts. It's actually more numbers that people are comparing here. But um, there's a tweet that uh, got like a lot of impressions on Twitter the other day, which basically is just a screenshot of the CoinGecko top uh, top DEX volume. Um, and it shows that Jupiter is, uh, has done more trading volume than uh, Uniswap v3 on Ethereum. Um, and I think fundamentally then like Decrypt picked this up as a new story even, and they, uh, they reported as, as Solana flips Ethereum in DeFi trading as uh, Jupiter airdrop nears. Um, and I think all these grandiose had uh, like, headlines um i i always think you need to be careful uh about what you're actually looking at because i i found this uh beautiful dashboard on dune built by uh the crypto space i don't know this i don't know this creator but uh it's very helpful in kind of making my point here um he is simulate or like i think he's actually taking the seven day average of what a token swap costs and then you can see that on ethereum on average a token swap currently costs uh $27.88 if you actually mm -hmm. settled on chain on Uniswap V3 or something. 
um, if you use CalSwap or if you use Uniswap X and like, there's a lot of like factors to this, but let's just take the like very basic assumption that this, these numbers are correct. And there's a significant economic cost uh, attached to doing trading volume on Ethereum. Um, and then in comparison, uh, Solana only costs you, a swap only costs you 12 cents. And most of the time is actually even cheaper. I think this is currently, there's like a lot of activity happening on chain. Um, and Solana also has um, local fee markets. So um, if you think about like, you could actually spread out your trading volume between like a lot of different DEXs on Solana and you wouldn't increase the global cost of transactions, but rather just the local cost would increase. So all that is to say, it's very, very easy to fake transaction volume on Solana. And I'm not saying that like this is perf purposefully done by some people. I'm just saying that until somebody has done the proper research and like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to like spin up some yeah. conspiracy theory here. I'm just advocating for being careful about what kind of metrics yeah. uh, we are comparing. Because like in the end, if you if you really think about it, like a motivated actor with fifty thousand in capital could theoretically for like five hundred dollars they could really, really bump up the transaction volume on or like the DEX volume on Solana with like a somewhat sophisticated setup. Like even if you just have like 300 wallets or something, like you could literally like pay ClickFarm in China to simulate millions of transactions for $500. So there's, there's, even, there's even on top of like potential fake volume, there's also arbitra just arbitrage, which, uh, you know, with cheaper fees, I'm guessing yeah. market makers are feasting a lot more. And like... I'm not. I'm much less familiar with VM, uh, how the Solana VM works uh, in terms of you know the whole component and, and how the data is uh, can be analyzed. But what I know is you know like over fifty percent of like transactions are failing on transa on Solana, and those are like uh, arbitrage bots. So you could actually see you know those addresses that have a large amount of like failing transactions. How much volume are they generating uh, on trading on this? And then you could get actually a sense of like. Um, how much is driven by arbitrage and how much is driven probably by more like retail and, and, you know, uh, so that could be at least some, uh, start to the filtering. Uh, I think actually Andrew, uh, yeah, you know, and, he did a Andrew report did and he, that's the way he filtered, I believe, um, for like retail or quote unquote real volume. Uh, obviously, you know, it's, you can always improve it. I don't know. Um, but filtering is hard, especially on cheap chains. It's like really, really hard to determine if it's if it's organic volume or if there's more to it. Uh, but yeah, this exactly this half of the volume is basically bots, uh, which I mean is uh, it, it, it makes sense. I think it's also it's it is efficient. It is more efficient to have you know more arbitrage happening, I guess. Um, yep. But uh, you know it does mean that you're comparing apples to oranges a bit because they're very different systems. It's just like the same as like comparing a number of addresses, even on Ethereum versus L2s, you know, the implication of what an address is, is very different because it's just much cheaper uh, to spin, spin one up on, on uh, L2s. And, and there's also farming involved for potential airdrops and stuff. So yeah, just comparing different systems, you have to put them on equal ground before then. Yeah, and even if you, like, even within the same system, like if yeah. you say like the trading volume in Solana last week was 4 billion and this week it's, I don't know, 20 billion. It's like, what, what is actually happening here? Like, is this, I don't know, is there meme coin mania or is there just a click farm in China somewhere that's generating a lot of clicks? Like we, like 
we don't know. And I think like as an industry, we kind of like have to take steps to find like more grounded metrics because like everything is so easy to inflate here, especially if things have like very low economic costs. So like yeah. I, I, I like TVL was like the meme of the last bull run. It seems like this bull run or like this, this run run up or whatever this is. Um, it seems to be that people care more about actual activity like metrics or like product metrics. And, and part of that is DEX trading volume, I guess. But now it seems like, okay, like even DEX trading volume is not, not a metric we can actually look at. So like, what, what's the, what's the next thing here? And like, how can we, how can we evolve, um, f away from these things? Even though like DEX trading, like I, I still believe it's a useful metric. I'm just, I don't know. Well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I, I think it's I good think to like, compare with it within the same system, like, you know, comparing it to itself, like how is that evolved, but comparing different, like that's, it's also why I'm very wary of like making cross chain dashboards on like whatever, uh, because you know, you're going to measure the implications of those and, and different systems and how those work. Well, I, I wanted to like bring this back a little bit, like argue with you guys though. Like I think like on Ethereum, the bots volume is also somewhat near like half of them. Like, I don't know what's the actual overall number, but like, I remember back looking at just the Uniswap, half of them were like bots volume. And like, I think like Ethereum or whatever blockchain it's designed, certainly, you know, we want to be real person use usage, but it's somewhat undeniably also a financial, you know, platform where, you know, like all those financial activities are going to happen. Like arbitrage is also a legit, you know, type of um, economic behavior and um, bots are run by people. And also um, actually like, I think even the breakdown of the bot and person volume doesn't really um, tell the truth of like how all the hype of airdrop can happen. Like, cause person can also do all those you know airdrop thing like i literally clicked through my three wallets to try to make swaps on jupiter but i didn't get any airdrops <laughs> so good job on them but uh, i'm just saying like yeah right like not even caring about the breakdown of bot in person but overall like airdrop is not organic needs that is like defined to be say oh is this blockchain serving people's daily life and needs are like real demand rather than just the speculating um, behavior so so I guess like maybe more organic metrics could be like trying to really differentiate what's the organic needs versus what's the speculating kind of needs. Yeah, but how do you even like we, it feels like we've just built this giant decentralized casino. So like what, what even is organic versus like an actual yeah. use case of like somebody in Turkey paying their coffee with USDC on Tron yeah. or USDT on Tron or something. So like it, it's yeah. it's all very, it's all very murky, but like, all, all I was trying to say is like, we need to be careful of like comparing apples to oranges because like the economic costs are like very different. So like that, that's all I'm trying to say. I'm not saying like bot activity is completely like irrelevant. Um, it's just like, yeah, like we, we need to, and like if somebody in our audience has like better ideas for actually measuring these things, um, we are open for debate. We're, we're up for <laughs> evolving on these metrics. Um, I just think like the, the way it is oftentimes interpreted on Twitter. And like, I think that's like part of what we want to do with this podcast is like actually give like context as data scientists, like, Hey, like you could literally like, do you know how this is measured? And like, you know, that this could be faked by like a, a motivated actor with literally 50,000 of capital or like more time and 10,000 of capital. So like, it, we just need to be careful because like. I, I do think that there's like bad actors in this space who are, who are trying to like make a narrative. Like Im imagine somebody has like a 
10 million dollar long or like in 10 million is not even a lot of money in this industry so like imagine if you go long solana and then you just over time like you start manipulating the dex volumes to like spike ever higher it's like yeah of course like your long is probably gonna be in the green after a while so like i i i think like that that's that's like the final point that i want to make where it's like i i think like this space is like almost like sometimes misled by data because the data is like so easy so easy to almost fake i think solana seems to be having like its DeFi summer moment of that like uh, ethereum had like was it 2021 uh somewhat so you know just like the same time back then when uh, after like the sushi and unia drops uh, things starting to to change a lot because now people started farming and being like okay well you know if if this is a trend maybe i should actually start generating volume here and and for no reason but maybe i'll get an airdrop someday and so that did change things but it'll be it's always tough to measure real activity until there's no incentives anymore uh whether it's speculative incentive of like you know an airdrop might be coming or actual current like points system or whatever um yeah so will be it'll be interesting you know once things settle and and there's all these that are uh well the in a few days, looking back at like Jupiter uh, volume, I think uh, could be cool. Yeah, yeah. But then, like as a counterpoint to that, like do you, like I think like you can't really like say that speculation is not a valid use case. Like, do you think like the no, 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 volume not... of like the Robin Hood app? Like, no, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I'm just saying the the trading volume of the Robin Hood app, like during the what was this like the the meme coin run-ups, like in actual stocks, like not like crypto memes, meme coins, but rather like, I don't know, what did oh. they pump? Like uh, GameStock and like Tesla was like a meme stock yeah, for yeah. like the long... So like all of these, like I, I, a lot of trading volume on like financial markets, I guess is driven by speculation. I like all of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. If it's you really mostly, break it down. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's, it's like, most, how, yeah. how do we like, we as an industry, <laughs> we're always like so like high at night. It's like, oh, speculations are real use case. It's like, yeah, no. Not really. Like it's it's pretty fair. No, it's well, more about like different different kinds of speculation. It's like, are you speculating on the asset itself, or are you speculating on you know what you could get trading mm. on there, and mm. you know you could get like uh, rewards in whatever form yeah. that is. Uh, yeah. That's that's what I mean. So it's like it, it, there's nuances, I guess, to it, but they're very very hard to properly define. Uh, but yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how things go on on the long term, I guess. Any final words? Um, I think Solana is really cool, despite what we just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I love it. The trading experience is so much better than on Ethereum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you, you like really? meme coin trading is actually fun on Solana. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Experienced all those like reverts case when you make this swap. Oh, I, I I haven't I haven't traded during any like busy times, but like the the experiences I've had so far are like really really good. And like Jupiter as a product especially like it's actually like really really solid. I really like it. Um, I think like all right. I, um, I was gonna say just I had the Solana phone and the the UX is pretty cool. I I think it's like you know it's kind of an eye into the future of how this could this whole blockchain thing could work like uh, for everyone having things on the phone as apps and having little to no fees makes a lot of sense, right? And it's pretty cool to to use it. All right. Go go out and pre-order the new Solana phone, I guess. <laughs> not, not an official endorsement. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, I think that, that finishes our first episode. Um, and yeah, um, if you're still here, thanks for listening. We'll be back in 
sometime in the future, um, the next few weeks, um, with, with another episode. And, um, since this is the first episode, um, we'd really like feedback. So if you like this, um, give us a thumbs up or, or write us a comment, uh, below. And, um, if there's something you didn't like, we'd also love to hear that so we can improve for the future. Um, yeah. Thank you guys. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.